scripture reading. So for our guests that are visiting today, we have been reading through the Proverbs as a part of our uh, Sunday morning worship service. And we are in Proverbs chapter 27. And uh, we're going to look at the entire passage. You follow in your Bible as I read these uh, 27 verses. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Let another man praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. A stone is heavy, and sand is weighty. But a fool's wrath is heavier than both of them. Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent, but who is able to stand before jealousy? Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. Like a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place. Ointment and perfume delight the heart, and the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend, nor go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. My son... Be wise and make my heart glad, that I may answer him who reproaches me. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. The simple pass on and are punished. Take the garment of him who is surety, who is surety for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he is surety for a seductress. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice rises early in the morning. It will be counted a curse to him. A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Whoever restrains her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Whoever keeps the fig tree will eat its fruit. So he who waits on his master will be honored. As in water, face reflects face, so a man's heart reveals the man. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of a man are never satisfied. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold and a man is valued by what others say of him. Though you grind a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his foolishness will not depart from him. Be diligent to know the state of your flock and attend to your herd. For riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. When the hay is removed and the tender grass shows itself and the herb of the mountains are gathered in, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. 
you shall have enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household, and the nourishment of your maidservants. Proverbs chapter 27, verses 1 through 27. Uh, now, take your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is where we are at in our study of this book, the book of Daniel. And this is about the seventh lesson that we have seen in the book of Daniel. And what we see today is a very familiar account to many of us. The account of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. And when we look at this account, we look at this chapter, there are two things that really stand out. Number one, the faith of these men, and number two, their deliverance, how they are delivered from the fiery furnace. Today, we're just going to focus on the first of those things, the faith of these men, and we're going to find this in verses 1 through 18. And as we think about this account where these three men come to the point where they have to make a choice of whether they're going to serve God or going to serve the king. And if they don't serve the king, they're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. It's doubtful that any of us will ever face quite a situation like that, where we'll have to choose whether we're going to obey a king or be burned to death. However, it's increasing more, increasingly more likely that one day we're going to have to face a situation where we'll have to choose whether we're going to stand for the Lord or to obey governmental authorities. We'll have to choose. We'll have to make a choice. Are we going to stand and be pleasing to the Lord or are we going to obey the government? So that day may come. But what I do know for sure is that every day we do face choices between obeying the Lord or obeying our own selfish desires. We think to ourselves in the innermost parts of our heart, I know this is pleasing to the Lord, but I want to do this. So we face the choice. We face the choice every day. Matter of fact, we face that choice multiple times a day. And as we look at this passage this morning, I want us to think about the questions. How can I choose what is right? Like these three Jewish men do. How can I do that? How can I choose God instead of choosing wrong, instead of choosing what I want? Another question I want to ask for you for us to think about is, how can we prepare ourselves in order to make the right choice? How can we prepare ourselves in order to make the right choice? So that's what we're going to do this morning as we look at this chapter together. Let's uh, just pause for another word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the accounts that you have recorded for us in your word. We're thankful for Daniel. And we're thankful for 
his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Lord, as we look at this event, this real event that took place involving these three men, Lord, I, I pray that as we look at your word, our minds would be open, that we would be able to set aside distractions and our hearts would be yielded to how the Holy Spirit will use this in our lives. So at the end of this message, we are more motivated and more equipped to choose you instead of choosing other things. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 here, and we'll see the setting up of an image. The setting up of an image, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So there's a few things I want us to think about as, as we reflect on these three verses. Number one, the time of this event. The time of this event. The fact of the matter is we're not sure when exactly this event takes place. We're given no chronological markers in this text things that would indicate the time. However, we do know that it happens after chapter 2. Okay, we do know it happens then, right? So chapter 2, chapter 3. It happens after chapter 2. And this is important because if you glance back at the end of chapter 2, you will see that Daniel has been promoted. Verse 48. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel has been promoted to being over the whole province of Babylon at the end of chapter 2, but that's not it. Verse 49 of chapter 2. And Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So not only was Daniel promoted, but so was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So at this time, when we come to chapter 3, when this event takes place, we can say that this happened at the time where Daniel... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were high officials in the government of Babylon. They were high officials in the government. They weren't lowly peons. They weren't still in school. They were high officials. So that's as much as we can say about the time of this event. Now, if we look at the size and scope of this image that is made, this, this image that King Nebuchadnezzar has made, I don't know if you 
noticed here as we were reading the text how many times it said something like King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Over and over again it mentions King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Over and over again the emphasis put on the fact that this is something that King Nebuchadnezzar did. He set up this image and we see that this image is made of gold. It's made of gold. Now, it's probably not solid gold. It's probably not one casting of gold. Okay? It's probably something more like the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the Ark of the Covenant was made of wood, and then it's overlaid with gold. So the outside of it's covered with gold. This is probably what's taking place here. And we see the size of it. 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. Um, in the New King James, the version I'm using, it says 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. Now, most of us don't go around carrying a cubit stick, do we? We might carry a yardstick or something like that. We measure in inches and feet and yards and things like that. We're not familiar with cubit, but a cubit's about 18 to 21 inches. That's roughly what it is. And... Um, Depending on where you lived, a cubit was a different length. It was a different length in Egypt than it was in Babylon, but it's going to be in between 18 and 21 inches, something like that. And so it's about 90 feet tall, and it's about uh, 9 feet wide. Now, let's put this in perspective. From the ceiling here to the floor is about 20 feet. Okay? About, about 20 feet. The width right here of the platform, right where the pulpit is, about 8 feet. Okay. From the front of the platform to the back corner of this room is 60 feet. So you can picture all of that in your mind. Now, this image is 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. So it's a significant statue. It's a significant uh, image that Nebuchadnezzar has made. And we notice in, in verse 2 the location of the image. The location of the image. It says that he set it up in the plain of Dura. The plain of Dura. Now, the exact location of this plain is de debated. But what we can conclude is that it's uh, relatively close to Babylon, but it's not, it's not right inside the city or right outside the city wall. So, it was a little distance away from Babylon, but it was relatively close to Babylon. I think the key thing to recognize about the description of the location here in the Bible is that this is in a place that is flat, right? Now, why would Nebuchadnezzar put it up in a place that was flat? So that it could be seen from great distance. Not only could it be seen from great distance, but... It would have room around it for the people to gather around it and stand uh, before it. And so it's located in the plain of Dura. And we, fourthly, I want you to notice here in these verses that the people, the people who were sent for. I want to talk about the ones who are required to come. We see this in verses 2 and 3. First, we observe that not everybody was required to be present. 
Not everybody was required to be, you know, some Sunday school materials and their illustrations and, you know, the picture that you get in Sunday school material, it makes it look like there was thousands and thousands and thousands, even tens of thousands of people who were gathered around this image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. This is not the picture that the text gives us. The picture that the text gives us is that Nebuchadnezzar did not require everyone in the kingdom to come to worship this image. First, that would have been impossible. Now, it, it would be impossible for everyone in the Babylonian kingdom to come to Babylon and worship. I mean, you've got to remember the Babylonian kingdom goes all the way from Egypt, all the way up to the top of what is today Turkey, all the way into Iran today. It would have been impossible for everybody to come. So not everybody was required to come. Secondly, we do know who was required to come. We do know who was required to come. And as you look at your text there, look at your Bible, in verses 2 and 3, we have a list of kinds of people. We have a list of offices that people held. And it's these people that are required to come. Nebuchadnezzar even has mentioned here all the officials. Just in case he missed one, he says all the officials of the provinces. So these are the people who are required to come to this image and stand before this image. So let me just go over these names real quick. The satraps. This is the word that means protectors of the kingdom. Protectors of the kingdom. And this is, a, this is an important and an interesting word, at least it's interesting to me, for the uh, ancient history. And Daniel chapter 6, which is under Persian rule, when Daniel was under Persian rule, Darius sets up 120 satraps over his kingdom. He divides the kingdom up into 120 sections. And a satrap rules over each one of those sections. So the satrap is a ruler of a section. So we might say like a state in the United States. It's a ruler of a state. Um, those uh, areas that a satrap ruled was called a satrapy. Satrapy. And when you put them together, they're called satrapies. Just don't think about people swinging on a you know, trapeze. But it's a sat trapeze. So the satraps ruled over the sat trapeze. Probably there was many of these. At, at, probably at least a hundred. At least a hundred. Um, and then it mentions administrators, or maybe your Bible says prefects. Prefects. These are high officials who are under the satraps. So they work under the satraps in various... Uh, capacities. Then there's the governors, the governors that are mentioned here, and these are administrators over smaller regions. So just as you have the United States and you have it divided into states, you have states that are divided into what? Counties. So this would be like the description that we find here. These governors would be over uh, like counties in the United States. And then it mentions counselors or advisors. 
Uh, these men would give counsel to the rulers, not just the king, but to any of the rulers. Then the treasurers. Of course, we know what the treasurers are. They're the accountants for the kingdom. And then it mentions judges. The judges that are mentioned here are what we would consider lawyers or judges. People who work with the law make decisions based upon the law. The last category of people that had to show up to the plain of Dura to stand before Nebuchadnezzar's image are called magistrates. Um, these are like law enforcement officers, law enforcement officers. And then we have the catch-all phrase, officials, all the officials of the provinces. Anybody that might have been left out uh, that was an official, Nebuchadnezzar makes sure they know they are included. So the ones who were required to come to this dedication were those in government service, especially those in executive and middle management positions. Not everybody in government service had to come, but the ones who were executives and middle management were required to come to this dedication of this image. Now, as we think about Nebuchadnezzar setting up this image of gold, this huge image of gold in the plain of Dura, bringing all these government officials in from all over the kingdom to come to this dedication, this celebration, I want us to consider two things. I want us to consider how chapter 3 and chapter 2 are connected now, do you remember back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And what was his dream of? His dream was of an image. An image, which we know is described as a statue. A statue of a man. He has a head, he has an upper body, a lower body, legs, feet, and toes. The statue of a man. So God gave Nebuchadnezzar that dream in chapter 2. In chapter 3, we have another image. But this is an image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So do you see the connection between those two chapters? There's an image in chapter 2. And now there's an image in chapter 3. And I also want you to consider and think about how does Nebuchadnezzar go from the end of chapter 2 to chapter 3 where he is setting up an image to be worshipped, which is really an image for him to be worshipped? Look at the end of chapter 2 again. Look at verse 47. This is after Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar his dream and the interpretation. Verse 47, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. So at the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that there's something different about Daniel's God. This image, this dream that he has of this image has caused him to recognize Daniel's God is different. He's the God of gods. He is the Lord of kings. Now we would hope that 
experiencing what Nebuchadnezzar experienced, it would cause him to have some humility. But what we see in chapter 3 is it did not cause him to have humility. In fact, I, I think probably what happened is that instead of Nebuchadnezzar focusing on the entire dream and the entire ter interpretation, he probably just focused on the part where he's the head of gold. I mean, look at the, look at the language that is used to describe Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold. We're still in chapter 2 now. Go back to verse 37. Go back to verse 37. Just listen to the uh, exalted language that is used here. So this is Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you, O king, are the king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, so wherever people live, or the beasts of the field or the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. I think that kind of went to Nebuchadnezzar's head a little bit. So he hears this dream. He hears the interpretation. And his response later on is, I'm not just the head of gold. I'm going to make an image out of gold, a whole image out of gold that celebrates me, that celebrates me, Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm going to have people come, bow down, and worship it, which is essentially going to be worshiping the king. So we see this in verses 1 through 3, the setting up of the image. Now in verses 4 through 7, we see the instructions for worshiping the image. Instructions for worshiping the image. Verse 4, then a herald cried aloud, To you it's commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. Then at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. There's that phrase again, Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the first thing I want you to see here is that this is a command. What, what Nebuchadnezzar's doing here and what he's telling people to do here is a command. These instructions are a command. We see at the beginning of verse 4, a herald makes a pronouncement. Now, anytime we see a herald making a pronouncement, it is because the one he serves tells him to make a pronouncement. And so the heralds in the ancient world were the public address system. If you wanted to get the news out, you sent heralds out. And the herald would proclaim the message of the king. And anytime you have a herald going out, proclaiming something, almost always connected with the message proclaimed 
is either a command or an invitation, one or the other. They are telling people to do something or they're inviting them to do something. In this case, it is a command. Nebuchadnezzar is giving a command to all these people he has required to come before this image. And then in verse 5, we see the instructions, the instructions. Two parts to this instruction, hearing and worshiping, hearing and worshiping. It says, when you hear the music, when you hear the music, the music is going to be the signal. When you hear it, when you hear the music, this tells you to do the next thing. This tells you what to do. So this is like on uh, some, I imagine they probably still do this sometimes on military bases, um, uh, it used to be very common that they would play bugle calls over, sometimes you actually had a bugler who did it, but a lot of times they would play it over a loudspeaker system. They would have bugle calls. Bugle calls tell you reveille, when to get up. Bugle calls play taps at the end of the day. This is bedtime, the end of the day. You also had bugle calls that called different people together. You had bugle calls that told you it's time to eat. This is when the bugle call, and that, that was all sounds, distinct sounds made by bugle calls. It's the same thing here that's being commanded. When you hear the music, it's telling you what to do. And what are they supposed to do? They are supposed to fall down and worship. Falling down, worship the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, falling down is telling us to posture, prostrate on your face. This is the accepted way that one would worship. You fall down on your face and you worship this image. Keep in mind that Nebuchadnezzar is really not telling these people to worship this inanimate object. People in the ancient world would fall down before inanimate objects, carved images, but they weren't worshiping that object, they were worshiping what they perceived to be the God behind that object. And the person behind this image that Nebuchadnezzar set up is Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one who is demanding people worship him. And so we have this command. We see the instructions. When you hear the music, fall down and worship. And we also see there's a penalty involved, a penalty for not obeying. Look at verse 6 again. Here's the penalty. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. So here's the command. This is when it takes place. This is what you're to do. And if you don't do it, you're going to be cast immediately into the burning fiery furnace. So death penalty, right? That's death penalty. And not just a quick death. This is a painful death, a burning, fiery furnace. Now, this might seem to be pretty stiff, a pretty harsh penalty, especially in our modern way of thinking. I mean, how, how could any government believe that this is a, a way to execute people? Even if you believed in capital punishment, you wouldn't burn people to death would you? Well, you got to remember, Nebuchadnezzar was a ruthless and brutal man. 
He was willing to kill all of his wise men because they could not answer an impossible request. An impossible request. He was going to have them all killed. Matter of fact, he started to execute them. So Nebuchadnezzar is not a pansy. You know, he's not sensitive in any way. He is brutal and he is ruthless. We also should understand that the severity of this penalty was probably meant to persuade all the foreigners in his government that they just need to accept this and do it. Even if their heart's not in it, they just need to accept it, fall down, and worship. Because remember, in the Babylonian government, there are lots of foreigners, lots of people who come from different races other than Babylonian or Chaldean. They speak different languages. They have a different native tongue. Case in point, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're from Judah. They're not from Babylon. They're Jews. They're not Babylonian. And they would have spoken Hebrew, not Aramaic or Akkadian or Babylonian. So this penalty is probably meant to say, this is a serious thing. You just need to comply and do it. And so we see, here's the instructions. Bow down and worship when you hear the music. And if you don't, death penalty right away. No due process. You know, no, no uh, leniency. You're going to be put to death right away. Now, Here's just a little bit of a side note, but in verses 5 through 7, I think it's point D there in your notes, verses 5 to 7, we have these musical instruments that are mentioned. Um, and if we wanted to, we could go into a pretty in-depth study of these musical instruments, but we're not going to do that because it's not understanding the exact nature of these instruments is not necessarily a uh, important for the point that's being made here this morning. But I do want to make these observations about the mention of these instruments. Number one, music was a common practice in all kinds of worship, not just the Jews' worship of Yahweh. Lots of different uh, societies used music as a part of their worship. Uh, number two, Worship music often involved instruments. It often involved instruments. Didn't always involve instruments. Matter of fact, probably predominantly for the Jews, uh, their worship music would have just been a cappella. Okay? Think about when Jesus and his disciples were meeting for Passover, right before Jesus is executed, put to death on the cross. As they're meeting and they have this Passover meal, and most of our Bibles talk about the institution of the Lord's Supper right in there. What's the last thing they did? They sang a hymn together. They sang a psalm together. They sang the Hallel, the last part of the Hallel Psalms together. That's what they did. There's no, there's no instruments that are mentioned there. And so worship often included instruments, but not always. And finally, the names of these instruments are not Hebrew names. These are not Hebrew names. They come from several different uh, languages. 
and we're not exactly sure how they might correspond to the instruments that are mentioned in other parts of the Old Testament. Not a, we're not sure exactly what some of these are. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image to be worshipped. And in reality, he's wanting the attention to be on himself. And he says, if you don't do this, you're going to die. Now, as we move on to verses 8 through 12, we see that there's some people who didn't do it. We see the refusal of the Jews to worship the image, the refusal of the Jews. It says, therefore, verse 8, therefore at the time, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. That's how you talk to kings, by the way. You don't say, hey, Bob. You say, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever doesn't fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. So in this refusal, we see there's an accusation that is made. So the fact that there are these Chaldeans... I take that meaning that they're the wise men. It's not an ethnical term. It's a vocational term. That the Chaldeans, some of the Chaldeans, certain ones, come forward and they accuse the Jews. They, they're going to accuse the Jews. Now, that's a broad term, the Jews. Okay? They're going to accuse the Jews before the king. This makes us understand that Nebuchadnezzar was not aware of uh, the Jews' refusal to worship. So, he, so apparently the situation was such that he couldn't just look out and see everybody and know who's bowing down and who couldn't. Because you had to have these Chaldeans come accuse, accuse the Jew, uh, Jews. We also see that there is some jealousy involved in here. These Chaldeans are in the same category of government worker as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, so they are probably motivated by jealousy. Uh, by the way, we see that in chapter 6. You know, when Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, remember that story? Uh, of course, we haven't got there yet in our study. But men, wise men, come to ki the king Darius, and they are jealous of Daniel. And that's why they accuse him. And we'll talk more about that account when we get there. But jealousy seems to be involved here. And then they go on to identify these Jews. They, they give their names here. Well, actually, the first thing they do in verse 12, if you look at verse 12, the first thing they do, they, they don't say all the Jews aren't bowing down. They say certain Jews. There are certain Jews who aren't bowing down. And then they kind of, in a very polite and humble way they're sticking it to Nebuchadnezzar because notice what it says in the next phrase whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon 
You put these guys in this position. These Jews who are not from around here, you have put them in this position, Nebuchadnezzar. And then they name them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's three close friends. And so this is who these Jews are. So we have the accusation, we've identified the ones who are not bowing down, and here's the issue. They're not going to serve foreign gods. They're not going to involve themselves in idolatry. They're not going to worship the gods of Babylon. Who would have been surprised by this? Why would they be surprised that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not going to bow down and worship this image? I mean, these are the guys who with Daniel in chapter 1 said, I'm not going to eat any meat from the king's table or drink his wine because of the defilement that it would bring. There wasn't anything inherently wrong with the king's meat or its wine, but it was connected to idolatry and false worship. And they said, we're not going to do it. In chapter 2, they cry out to God. For his mercy. And God answers their prayer and gives Daniel the dream and the interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar. These men are very faithful to God. Who would have been surprised by the fact that they didn't bow down and worship? Who would have expected them to bow down and worship? They were not closet Christians. You know, I'm bringing that into our time. They're not closet Christians. They're not cultural Christians. These would be the people who show up every Sunday. They go to prayer meeting. They go to Bible study. They're faithfully serving the Lord. They're not trying to be bashful about it. They're not covering up. Everybody knows who they worship and who their God is. No one would have been surprised by this. No one should have been surprised by this. And so we have these Three Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who have refused to engage in idolatry and worship this image. But what's the question everybody else has when we look at these verses? When you look at these verses, verses 8 through 12, what's the question everybody has? Where is Daniel? Where's Daniel? So let me try to address that real quick. I think there's four options, four options as to where Daniel is. Some of these options are more believable. Some of them are less believable, but they're still options. Option number one, where is Daniel? He's there and he bowed down to worship the image. Okay, that is That's an option, right? He could have done that, right? He could be there and he could have bowed down the image. Of course, that doesn't make any sense given the context of the book of Daniel, right? You're not going to have faithful Daniel, faithful Daniel, unfaithful Daniel, faithful Daniel, faithful Daniel, faithful Daniel, faithful Daniel. You're you're just not going to have that, okay? It wouldn't make sense in the context of the book or the story. So it's an option, but right away we'll say option one, Daniel did not bow down to the image. Okay. Option number two, he's away on government business. He's away on government business. So he wouldn't have been in Babylon at the time. Okay. So 
the government must still operate, correct? Anytime you have a government, even when the government has a big celebration, the government must still operate. For instance, maybe you read in the news here recently how uh, the State Department summoned the ambassador from China. It doesn't matter if there's a Chinese holiday or not. When uh, you're on government business and the uh, government where you're an ambassador to summons you, guess what you do? You go. You go. It doesn't matter what else is going on. So it's possible Daniel could have been away on government business. Um, it is possible, too, this is number three, it is possible, too, that Daniel was there and Daniel didn't bow down, but these Chaldean accusers didn't want to mess with Daniel. Okay, that's also possible. Because remember, Nebuchadnezzar favors Daniel. Daniel's a powerful guy. They don't want Daniel to come talk to Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar might change his mind about all this. Okay, so that's a possible. I think the most probable answer to the question, where is Daniel, is that Daniel is actually in Babylon, in the city. He did not go out to the plain of Dura. I think this was the most likely answer because he is over the province of Babylon, including the capital city. The rest of the government is going out to this plain. Somebody has to run things back home. I think this is the most likely answer as to where is Daniel at this time. He stayed back at the city, which is very appropriate since his position that he has been given. So wherever Daniel is, what we see is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the hot seat. They are in the hot seat with the king. They have been consistent and faithful in their beliefs towards the one true and living God and have not worshipped the image. They are going to have to face the music. And so we see in verses 13 through 15 the king's direct command to worship the image. This has gone from a proclamation to now the king himself is going to tell Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you have to worship. Look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image which I have set up? That's kind of a stupid question. Is it true? He knows Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He knows what the answer would be. Verse 15. Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good, but if you don't worship, you shall be cast immediately into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, notice the end of verse 15. Notice it closely. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? So he puts it in a question form there, but it's really a statement. And the statement is this, that Nebuchadnezzar's making. There is no God who can deliver you from my hand. 
Nothing is going to save you from this penalty if you don't do what I say. So notice in verse 13, we see that Nebuchadnezzar here is fueled by anger. He's fueled by anger. In a rage and fury is what the text said. He's fueled by anger, for, at least for two reasons. Number one, this is a public display of disobedience, direct disobedience against him by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And number two, it, it's, it's personal disloyalty. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who put them in their position. And they are being disloyal to him. So he takes it personally and he is fueled by anger. And so in verses 14 and 15, he gives an ultimatum. This is a personal appeal by the king himself, a second chance, a last chance. Do what you're being told to do or you are going to die. And we also see here at the end of verse 15, a total disregard for the Lord. A total disregard for the Lord. When he says, who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? He has totally forgotten everything he learned in chapter 2. Totally forgotten it. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar said, truly, your God is the God of gods, the king, or the Lord of kings, the revealer of secrets. And so he has totally forgotten and totally disregards God. He is ignoring God. And when you ignore God, you do stupid things. You do dumb things. You don't have to give me any examples, but I know there's been times that where you've ignored God. And you look at, what did I do when I ignored God? And you might look back on it now and say, that was dumb. That was pretty stupid. Nebuchadnezzar is doing the same thing. He's ignoring God, and so he's making these bad decisions. But notice, as we come to the end of our text, verses 16 through 18, the Jews trust in God. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, and I love this answer. I know we're not supposed to uh, take pleasure and, you know, kind of harsh speaking or, or when bad things happen, but I love the answer that these guys give to the king because it is, it is these three slave men, Jewish slaves, putting the king in his place. Look what they say. O Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, hey, Bob. You remember what we looked at before when the Chaldeans went before the king? What did they say? Oh, king, live forever. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, hey, Bob, we have no need to answer you in this matter. <laughs> we don't even need to talk to you about this. You are not our judge. You are not our judge. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. We don't have to answer to you. And, by the way, our God is omnipotent. He's the deliverer God. He can deliver us from your fiery, burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. And I think part of what they're saying there is... Even if we get burned up, 
in this burning, fiery furnace, we're delivered from you. You lose. You lose. Either way, at the end of this, you lose. Verse 18. But if not, let it be known to you, O king. Notice what it says. That we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the image of gold which you have set up. So their response to King Nebuchadnezzar is kind of disrespectful, but it's absolutely true. And they are expressing their total faith and trust in God. And they will not compromise just because some king says so. They're bold. They have supernatural courage. And they take a stand. Now, I want you to turn back to the book of Hebrews real quick. Here as we're getting ready to end. Book of Hebrews, chapter 11. What's chapter 11 called? Hall of Faith, right? Hall of Faith. I want you to look back here. Now, I want you to look at verses 32 and 33. 32 and 33. Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego appear here. Verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the, the time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, and Jephthah, also of David, Samuel, and, his, and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Now look at the beginning of verse 44. Quenched the violence of fire. I think that first phrase in verse 34 is referring to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because what we'll see next week is that they are delivered out of the fire. Not from it, as in the sense of not having to go through it. They are delivered out of it. And so I think their account is an account that the author of Hebrew uses for men of faith. Now, as we close here, I want us to carefully consider the circumstances of these men up to this point. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were taken captive. They are brought to Babylon for training. They are destined for a life of service in the government and probably low-level service at that. They are then going to be executed along with all the wise men, but are spared. And then even elevated to very prominent positions in the province of Babylon. And now they are being put into a position in which their very lives are in jeopardy. We see this several times through the book of Daniel where there's a choice that has to be made, whether you're going to serve God or whether you're going to obey the king, whether you're going to obey the authorities. They are given a chance, these three men, to worship the king or to stay faithful 
to God. And you might think to yourself, man, I don't know what I would do if I were in their position. You might even think to yourself, there's, there's, I don't think I could do that. There's no way I could take a stand like that knowing I would be thrown into a fiery furnace. Well, I want you to understand something I think is proven out throughout the Bible. God gives what we need when we need it. God gives what we need when we need it. And you might not be bold and courageous right now, or you might not think of yourself that way. But as you faithfully follow the Lord, and that time comes when you have to face the music, God will give you what you need in your time of need. But I want you to remember, too, he doesn't turn zebras into leopards. Okay? He doesn't turn zebras into leopards. And if, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not living by faith now, when it's time for you to face the music, you cannot expect all of a sudden God's going to work a miracle and you're just going to be super faithful. That is not the way it works. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego literally had to face the music. The music was playing. And when we have to face the music, and we have to choose between God or something else. How are we able to do this? How are we able to do it? It is by trusting in God. It is by faith in God. And when we talk about faith, we're not talking about what some people call blind faith. Faith always has an object. It's always faith in fill in the blank. It's always faith in something or someone. And as, as Christians, our faith is in God. He is the object of our faith. He is the one who we are trusting in. We're not trusting in a myth. We're not trusting in a fantasy. We're trusting in a real person. We are trusting in God. And he is a sound and sure basis for our faith. Not only is our basis of our faith sure, but we need to recognize that faith is something that has to be exercised. Exer that's a key, I use that word on purpose, exercised, right? Faith is something that has to be exercised. You don't get a full measure of all the faith you're ever going to need right when you become a Christian. Faith is something that's built up over time and experience. Faith is like a muscle, you know? If you exercise it, if you exercise your muscles, they grow stronger. In fact, we know if you wanna get bigger, you've put more weights on in your exercise. And if you exercise with more weight and more weight and more weight, it'll actually make your muscles bigger. Faith is very similar. As you exercise faith, it gets stronger and it gets bigger. As you trust in God, you see him work. Doesn't mean it is always what you want to see, but you see him work and your faith is strengthened and grows. So how can you face the music like these three Hebrew men? You face it by trusting 
in God. And how can you prepare for that time when you will trust in God? Number one, you get to know God by knowing his word. The Bible tells us about God. If you're going to trust someone, you want to know about them, don't you? If you're going to trust someone with your car, you want to know that they're not going to go out here and see how fast it goes. They're not going to drive crazy. If you're going to trust someone with your life, you want to know they're trustworthy. If you're going to trust in God, you need to know about God. Because one day, when you will face the music, because it will happen, one day you're going to have to face the music. It doesn't matter how you feel. It won't matter. Matter of fact, you're going to, let me tell you, on the day where you face the music, you're going to feel bad. You're going to feel confused and you're going to feel afraid. You're going to feel inadequate. It doesn't matter because it doesn't matter what you feel. It matters what you know. You know God. You know that God is faithful. You know Jesus Christ died for you. You know your eternal destiny. You know that God cares for you. It'll matter what you know when you hear the music. Something else that helps us prepare for these times is having fellowship with other believers. There's no lone wolf Christians. We need each other, and we need to have fellowship. And finally, prayer. Get on your knees. Get on your knees and ask God for wisdom and strength for the day. You don't know what the day will bring. But if you ask God for wisdom and strength for the day, he wants to answer that prayer. He will answer that prayer. He will give you wisdom and he will give you strength. The day might not turn out the way you want it to, but God will give you what you need in the time of need. I want you to stand with me and we'll have a closing word of prayer. Lord, we're thankful for this account that we have in our Bibles. And Lord, we know in our situation, our current context here in the United States of America, that it's extremely unlikely that we'll ever have to stand before a king and make a choice whether we're going to be faithful to you or we're going to bow down and worship at an idol. So we know that that's unlikely. But we do know that it is absolutely true that we will have to stand against the schemes of the devil. We know this is true because you have told us through Paul that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and against rulers of the the darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness. We know we will wrestle against these things. We have to stand against them. We have to stand against sin and wicked spiritual influences, some of which come from even our own heart. And we're so thankful that you have told us that we can trust in you and that we can come to you and ask you, for wisdom, ask you for strength to get through the day, to get through the time where we will have to make a decision to stand up 
and serve you and be faithful to you or bow down to whatever idol it might be that we're being faced with. We're thankful that you are faithful to us and you will not leave us without help. And so, Lord, help us to love you, help us to serve you, and help us to be able in the day when we are like these Hebrew men and we face the music that we would stand and we would stand faithful to you. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We are to